You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Raid. Hello, yes, welcome to 3CR. It's, um, where is it, Wednesday afternoon here in lockdown Sydney, but you're listening to me as always on Friday on Community Radio 855am if you're in Melbourne through all the W's on 3cr.org.au, through the podcast now, a Friday Rave is available for your favourite podcasting client, perhaps through your state-of-the-art surveillance helicopter in the sky above Smith Street. However you're listening, hope you're doing as best as you can in these strange and weird times. I'm joined in the studio today, well, not in the studio, but in the virtual studio with the wonders of modern technology by a, a friend of the show and a friend of us all, and he's been here before. Um, Clinton Fernandez. Uh, good to be with you, Jacob. Yeah, welcome back to 3CR, bro. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Are you coping with the lockdown all right? Uh, I am. Um, but uh, obviously my concern is the people whose, uh, whose workers and lives are a bit more precarious. Yes. yes. Uh, so, you know, uh, I've got it reasonably easy compared to others. Yeah, yeah, as, as have I, as have I, man. But um, it's been a big week. It's been a big month, I should say. We had the um, the anniversary of 70 years since the signing of the ANZUS Agreement that we yep. talked with Peter Crono about last week. But um, mm-hmm. but also um, get a bit of your take on it. Um, sure. 70 years, mate. Now, 50 years. We want to, I want to talk about Afghanistan. That's what I waylaid you into the show with. Okay. But, um, I, I think I pointed out to Peter that back when um, John Howard said he was sending the HMAS Canimbla um, in the aftermath of the 9-11, I made the observation then that he was invoking the ANZUS Treaty, which is the yes. Pacific Area Treaty, to consult to actually send an amphibious landing craft to a landlocked country yes. um, outside of the area of the ANZUS Treaty. And I thought, everything we're going to hear about this war from, from now on is bullshit. Um, but um, the way the ANZUS Treaty has been used in Afghanistan, is your understanding of the treaty one that would incorporate Afghanistan? Uh, yes, the ANZUS Treaty uh, can be invoked if there's an attack on the metropolitan territory of either country, the United States or Australia or even New Zealand. Uh, and uh, the September 11 attacks occurred on the metropolitan territory of the United States. They occurred uh, on in mainland United States. And the ANZUS Treaty, you know, can be invoked in the circumstances. What hasn't been mentioned, though, is that the ANZUS Treaty was invoked by John Howard on the 14th of September, only because on the 12th of September, the day after the attacks, NATO invoked the NATO treaty. Right. And so uh, that's the first time that, that NATO had ever been uh, formally invoked. Right. Yeah, the, the, the Washington Treaty uh, from 1949 had never been invoked until the 12th of September 2001. And so 
in order to play catch up and show that Australia was as much committed to the United States alliance as the NATO countries, uh, Howard invoked uh, ANZUS. Right, that was the first. Was that the first time ANZUS was invoked? First time ever, and the first time NATO was invoked as well. Yeah, yeah. So it was a whole new, I guess, a whole new framework of um, of international relationships moving moving into war. Well, it's an attempt to show relevance to the United States and to show that Australia can be, in fact, uh, a, a valuable ally and a partner. Um, but the the invoking came two days after NATO itself was. Right, I wasn't aware of that. That's one to that's one to keep in mind. Uh, Jacob, I don't blame you for not being aware of it because most press simply does not explain that fact. Right. Uh, it, it is based on Howard's close personal relationship with George W. Bush and a whole bunch of other personalized commentary. But the the reality is, uh, he was playing catch up to NATO. In much the same way, I guess that when NATO was first signed seventy years ago, it was a attempt by the Menzies government to play catch-up with the agreements that um, the United States was entering with Japan. Yeah, it was... Uh, uh, ANZUS came on the heels of NATO. NATO, uh, the Washington Treaty, as it's called, uh, 1949, ANZUS 1951, uh, and even the signing of that treaty, the ANZUS, the, the negotiations, uh, occurred uh, in order to provide an assurance to the Australian public uh, that the United States uh, would have some kind of a security... Uh, discussion with Australia, should Australia be required to send troops to the Middle East? Uh, I just want to explain what that means. Yeah. Uh, the First World War had occurred, and Australia was fighting on uh, the Western Front. Uh, Second World War, Australia fought in Europe, but also in the Middle East. Uh, and in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, the prospect of a Third World War couldn't have been ruled out. And so where would Australian forces be in the event of a Third World War? Well, Allied planning said that they should be back in the Middle East, guarding the oil fields and the air bases. And the Australian government at the time realized that it couldn't simply justify uh, a decision to send the entire Australian Defence Force back to the Middle East in the event of a Third World War, because who would defend Australia? And so the reason ANZUS was negotiating uh, was to provide... Um, a plausible sense to the Australian public that it would be politically okay to send the entire defense force uh, back to the Middle East because there was something called an ANZUS treaty uh, should there be any conflict in Australia. Uh, there, there was no likelihood of any conflict or any attack on Australia because Japan d did not have even its own sovereignty yeah. uh, until 1954. Japan was under the United States occupation. But that was, that was just, yeah, being, being sold. But but in the Middle East, and then of course Australia did go to war in the Middle East in 19, was it 1990 or early 91? Yes, uh, in August 1990, uh, when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, mm -hmm. um, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Bob Hawke, uh, made personal approaches to the US President, uh, George Bush, that's Bush the father, mm -hmm. uh, in order to express Australia's willingness and eagerness, in fact, to participate in any coalition operations. Uh, and so there was a, 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 a naval contingent that went in there. There was even a couple of observers from the army. Um, and that was once again an attempt to show uh, that Australia was going to and was willing to be uh, a close partner of the United States. Uh, it's, it's, there's a very predictable uh, dynamic at play. It is precisely because uh, of the asymmetric transactional relationship um, and the fact that Australia doesn't count very much in US 
strategic planning that we have to make all these attempts uh, to show our relevance, because otherwise the United States would not notice us. Well, okay, I just want to pick up on that on that point. You say otherwise the United States would not notice us, and there was a press conference a couple of weeks ago where it was raised um, in the White House. The press, I think it was the press secretary, was thanking all the countries for helping with Afghanistan. Yes. And left Australia off the list. Well, there was a press release put out by Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, saying that he'll never forget that uh, Australia invoked ANZUS in September 11. Uh, but these are not only – they are genuine statements. I mean, they are accurate. Uh, but they are expected uh, on the anniversary. Of course. Of course. Uh, but the, uh, the fact is Australia doesn't figure very much in American planning. And, and well, when you say Australia doesn't figure much in American planning, it strikes me that um, America would play a significant role, not just in Afghanistan, but with other conflicts which may arise in the in the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. through themes like um, it's hosting the Pine Gap, and there are whole, whole oh yes satellites. So it's it's uh, I think of, you're saying that the Australian government or the Australian opinion doesn't. Well, well, I mean, the Australian military capability doesn't matter that much. It's more uh, that uh, we have to keep reminding the United States uh, that we uh, are keen to be part of the alliance. Yes, Pine Gap is extremely important. So is Northwest Cape on the northwestern Cape of Australia near the town of Exmouth in Western Australia. And uh, yes, those those two installations are of importance to the United States. But they are essentially uh, an ongoing uh, installation, the, the intelligence that is collected from there um, and the signals that are transmitted from and to there uh, occur all the time anyway. Uh, but Australia as a whole does not figure into American military planning. It's kind of, a, it's just a, a suitable piece of real estate. Uh, the relationship is... Yeah, indeed, indeed, yes. As, as one was written, uh, you know, as you know. But uh, the reality is... Um, the relationship is a transactional one. Mm-hmm. Um, the the rhetoric about mateship and the Battle of the Coral Sea and all those other things uh, are for public opinion. The relationship is transactional uh, and unequal. And Australian policy planners know this. Mm-hmm. When you see commentators or peace activists or academics uh, talk about uh, how um, uh, it's an unequal relationship and uh, 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 the United States has a very hard-nosed view of power and it doesn't care too much about Australia. Uh, well, the reality is that Australian planners already know that. Uh, it's not as though they need to be told this by the peace movement. They are well aware that we have a, a dramatically unequal and transactional relationship. They know the United States has a cynical, real politic view of the world. Uh, and that's precisely why they keep making these efforts to figure in American thinking, because they know that the United States would simply not think about Australia uh, on a day-to-day basis otherwise. So in as, so, so as that, in, a, in, as, in as much as that's the case, that goes to say that Australia also has a transactional attitude towards its um, friendship, quote-unquote. Absolutely right. At the policy planning level, that is exactly the case. Now, uh, this has to be divorced from uh, the public presentation of it. 
years. Okay, in much this, but 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 to just say that is not to say anything unusual. If I run this argument in another domain, uh, then you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's say you wanted to find out what the pricing policy is of the two major supermarkets. Uh, you could go to the press releases uh, where Coles and Woolworths will assure you that they want to provide the highest quality at the lowest prices and they want to look after all their workers and so on. Alternatively, you could just go to the supermarket and look at the prices. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in politics, you don't look at the press releases, you look at the actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you'll see that, yes, Australian policy planners, in fact, do have um, an unsentimental view of power and they know their small place in it in the, in the United States thinking. Uh, and they also know the United States has exactly the same view of power. It's unsentimental. It's, it's, it's real politique. And this is, you, you said just a moment ago that the Australian government does not need the um, peace movement to tell them that they're subservient to the United States. Yes, the peace movement tells them that all the time, though, but, the, no, but it's, no, it's I'm, yeah. And I'm, and I'm sick of it. Um, and I, frankly, have opted out of a whole lot of peace movement conferences and the rest of it because I'm sick of that being said. And because I think it's important for the Australian public and the Australian peace movement to, I guess, realise that it's not so much that we're the United States' deputy dog because because they tell us to do something and, and we jump because that's in our nature. I think we do that because we see that we are part of the glo- – a, a minor part, but a part nonetheless of the, the Western capital infrastructure – Mm-hmm. That has the same aims and objectives. Yes. As the American Western. Yes. Capital infrastructure. Yes. So it's easy to sort of almost, in some way, by saying that America jumps and Australia asks how high, mm-hmm. is to some case letting Austra- letting the Australian government and Australian capital, the Australian system, mm-hmm. if you will, off the hook. Yes, it's, it's inaccurate. I mean, it makes it look like there is some victim go- uh, that is haplessly uh, sending troops into conflict, simply being ordered by the United States. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't uh, criticize the peace movement too much for this because they are susceptible to the public utterances, the press releases. Uh, and if you look at it just like that, uh, then you, know, you get that answer. That we, it's all appeasement uh, of the United States. Um, and you heard, I heard some of this, um, you know, about 20 years ago, um, and more uh, about how we are appeasing Indonesia, for example, uh, over, over the case of East Timor. Uh, it's not appeasement at all. Uh, it is, it looks like it if you don't study the internal record, but the planning record, uh, and there's a rich planning record for uh, decades of history shows that, uh, Australian po- Policy planners have an unsentimental view of power. They know the United States also has exactly the same unsentimental view of power. Their biggest fear is not that a closer alliance with the United States uh, would harm Australia by making us a target. They know that. Their biggest fear is that some other country would become more important and more relevant to the United States, and the United States would then choose that other country. We already have evidence about this in the historical archival record uh, and it's consistent. Right. Okay. Well, well if I could give, well, give an example then, just because you, you want to know. Yeah. Well, in 1942, uh, just a few months after uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in uh, Hawaii, Honolulu, uh, the commander in chief of American forces, Douglas MacArthur, uh, came in for a meeting with the Australian War Cabinet, uh, uh, you know, the Curtin Cabinet. So this is in June 1942. 
And anybody interested in finding the records on this can just go to the DFAT website, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade website, have a look at the historical documents section uh, for June 1942. Uh, you have the Prime Minister and the, and the entire Defence Cabinet, the War Cabinet of Australia, uh, welcoming MacArthur and saying, you know, how keen we are to have this good relationship with you, and this is going to go on to better things. And MacArthur tells them more than once in that same conversation that we have no interest uh, in Australia other than as a strategic base from which to hit Japan. Uh, whatever our feelings, we might have some warm sentiments towards you, might have some warm feelings towards you, but our interest is in Australia as a strategic base from which to hit Japan, meaning that the war cabinet opened their arms and tried to embrace the United States, and at the highest levels, that was rebuffed. Right. And that's, that's a war cabinet meeting with General Douglas MacArthur in June 1942. The United States has an unsentimental view of power, and Australia is a strategic basis from which to hit Japan, or, or, or with Pine Gap and, and the Northwest Cape, um, a strategic basis, a base rather, uh, from which we can uh, eavesdrop on the world and send certain, uh, you know, communications to and from that place. Uh, but it's got nothing to do with any sentimentality or anything else. And, and that's that's building up now too. Just before we get to Afghanistan, I know. Excuse me. In recent recent months, I think it's been only the last. Maybe that's when I've come up, come across it. Mm-hmm. The um, the U.S. military um, concept of agile combat deployment or mm-hmm. agile combat combat engagement. ACE, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I started seeing Darwin come up as a as one of the ACE bases that um, mm-hmm. the United States are relying on. Um, yes. So again, that's just seen this as a base. And I don't... Well, it's welcome. It's welcomed by Australian policy planners, you see. Yeah. Uh, the, uh... I don't see any debate about, about Australia becoming an agile combat engagement base no. in the United States. No. And the reason for that, actually, is the, uh, the opposition giving complete bipartisan support to this. Mm. Uh, the public only becomes aware of certain matters on foreign policy uh, and defense policy when there is a a conflict uh, between the two major parties. Yeah. Um, for as long as there was a bipartisan consensus uh, in which one side of politics would agree in opposition not to harass the other side and vice versa, um, there was no debate or discussion at the elite level about the Indonesian occupation of Timor and the genocide that occurred there and Australia's role in it. Yeah. It's only when the bipartisan consensus was fractured for the very first time by Labour's shadow foreign minister, Laurie Burton, that room became open uh, in the media and in the public sphere uh, for a debate to occur. And the same thing with uh, the, the, the Marine Expeditionary Forces, uh, the 2,500 uh, troops that, that are in Darwin. Uh, there is no conflict on that. There's a bipartisan consensus in favor of it. And therefore, it simply isn't worth reporting as far as the media is concerned. Uh, what you ought to know, though, is that that number will expand over the course of this decade. Uh, we might wind up with as many as 50,000 people, 50,000 United States forces um, in Australia, not 2,500, because the more vulnerable the United States gets uh, in the northwestern Pacific, namely uh, uh, Taiwan, Guam, Palau, uh, Marianas, places like that, the more vulnerable the United States becomes there as a result of China's uh, missile uh, ability. Uh, the more attractive Australia becomes as a as a base for the United States. Yeah, and 
that is built that is building up. We we have a situation where the America where the US military is um is a, we spoke about it last week so we won't go into it, but um documenting every every scrap of concrete I think they put it of of air bases that they'd left around after the Second World War and reopening some of it and deploying yes. Well, well, the attempt is to get uh, the, the Lombrum uh, military base, L-O-M-B-R-U-M, uh, in Manus Island, Manus Island yeah. uh, which is on the equator. It's uh, Papua New Guinea territory, uh, but it's on the equator. Uh, and it's it used to be because Papua New Guinea was an Australian colony. Uh, it used to be where there was an Australian naval base there. Uh, and there were attempts to try and re-ignite, uh, uh, re, uh, uh, restart that base. Uh, it was all rebuffed by the United States until very recently uh, because of the growing threat to um, the United States' ability to intimidate China. And that's um, it's probably a whole other show or a series of shows in itself mm-hmm. about the United States and China. And, um, sure, we can talk about how... Position yep. ...in that because um, the move towards, um, towards our region is, is a little, little bit concerning, but can't go into that too much. I want to. I want to get back to Afghanistan. Okay. And say that what was Australia's strategic interest in Afghanistan? Uh, the interest in Afghanistan was to be in the same general location as the United States, so that American uh, political figures, uh, senators, uh, members of Congress, uh, members of the executive government, uh, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, and so on could visit Afghanistan and see and appreciate the fact that Australia was there. That's the same thing in Iraq, in fact. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, anything that happened in Baghdad or Kabul was irrelevant as far as Australia was concerned. For Australian policy planners, uh, what mattered was not anything that had to do with, with, with Baghdad or Kabul, but rather that in the Australian area of operations, uh, senior American personnel would come in uh, and visit and appreciate the fact that we were there. That was a strategic interest. In fact, <clears throat> the only country that won the Iraq war, which the invasion of 2003, the only country that won the Iraq war was Australia. Why do I say that? Because uh, winning a war is about achieving your political objectives. Uh, a superpower like the United States uh, is never going to be defeated on the battlefield. Uh, so, so it wasn't a defeat in that sense. But it was unable to achieve its war objectives, which is to establish a permanent military base in the Middle East, in, in, in Iraq. Uh, and so the United States lost in that sense, that it, it didn't actually, uh, it wasn't able to, uh, to maintain a permanent uh, presence in, in Iraq, although it's, it's still trying to do that. Uh, it wasn't able to uh, take over Iraq's oil industry uh, via its own corporations. The United States lost the war in Iraq in that sense. Uh, uh, the Iraqi government obviously lost the war in 2003. Uh, but Australia won the war. It achieved its objectives. It showed that Australia was there with the United States. It showed that we were important. And I'm not presenting this as caricature or irony. This is the actual war planning. The actual objectives were to ensure that Australia was going to be there. So if you look at uh, where Australia was, the Australian forces, they weren't actually involved uh, in the invasion at any great sense. I mean, they basically uh, stayed in the green zone which is a, a highly fortified area uh, surrounding the capital of Baghdad. Uh, and then 16 kilometers away to the west, uh, they stayed at the uh, Baghdad International Airport. Uh, and in the middle of an, an, a U.S. Army Corps 
in the middle of 40,000 American troops, there was an Australian contingent. Uh, and then there was another Australian contingent, as I said, in the, uh, in the green zone. And then there was a small training team in the south with the Shiites. Um, there was an SAS move to capture uh, an air base, but that air base was unoccupied and uh, um, it was basically uh, a token. Uh, and so uh, it wasn't really a military defeat that Australia participated in, military defeat of the Iraqi government, but rather showing that Australia was there because otherwise it would have looked like the United States is just invading another country. And so Britain's there, uh, Australia's there, uh, Spain is there, I think Poland is there in order to provide a sense that there is a so-called coalition of the willing, that it's not simply one country invading another. Uh, and in that sense, the Australian, uh, you know, uh, uh, pa- participation in Iraq uh, achieved policy planners' objectives. Uh, the prime minister at the time, John Howard, uh, was a very canny conservative, and he ensured that uh, there would be zero or almost zero casualties because of where he insisted Australian uh, troops be, be positioned. To a lesser extent, but along the same lines, and goes for our involvement in Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan, there were actually fights. I mean, there was actually. Yes. Yeah. But we, um, but but nonetheless, it remains that our whole objective in being there was to be seen to be an important ally of the United States. Yes, yes. Well, the, the, that was the objective. The objective was to show our relevance. And in fact, uh, our interests were were so um, far from the thinking of American planners that uh, one of the, the, the Taliban fighters uh, who had actually infiltrated um, the Afghan National Army, his name was Hekmatullah, uh, he turned his weapon on his Australian trainers and killed a few of them. And he was then uh, chased down and captured later on, and uh, he was supposed to face a death penalty. But when the Taliban were negotiating with uh, the Trump administration, they insisted that a whole bunch of Taliban prisoners uh, be allowed to leave Afghanistan, and leave, leave prison, uh, forget about the death penalty, and go to Qatar. And Hekmatullah was one of them. Yeah. And you know that the reason Australia was there because the United States was there is that 24 hours after uh, President Biden announced the withdrawal, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the withdrawal. Uh, because, because, I mean, it has to be understood, his objectives had been met. They had showed relevance to the United States. His name is Hekmatullah, uh, H-E-K-M-A-T-U-L-L-A-H. Um, and he was he was freed he was freed of that mob. He went to a conference in Qatar, as I yeah. He was he was one of the people who wound up in in Doha, Qatar. Yeah. Um, uh, although he was supposed to face a death penalty, um, he he turned his uh, weapon against his Australian trainers. And that day, I think it was in August 2012, from memory. Uh, was the highest casualty day uh, for Australian forces since the Vietnam War right. uh, because of the the deaths that had occurred, not just because of Hekmatullah, but that there was another accident or something else uh, on on that specific day. It was the worst day of the, of the conflict for Australia since the Vietnam War. Uh, and he was just allowed to leave, yeah. And, and, but I say not only allowed to leave, but made a part of their, part of their conference team, and he will no doubt play a 
play a role within the within the continue to play a role within the Taliban. I, I would imagine that there would be some kind of a uh, an important position for him uh, somewhere in in a new government, uh, perhaps not at the high level, uh, but somewhere. Uh, as far as the Taliban are concerned, uh, their aims were achieved because they made the whole facade of trying to train the Afghan National Army uh, impossible. Once the trainees start turning their weapons against the trainers, that's the end of the show. Yeah, yeah. And and what in the few minutes that's left to us, what? Now for Afghanistan and Australia, and, and Australia, and have we left Afghanistan for good, or do you think that it, it concerns me, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that this the Taliban love them or hate them, and I'm you know I'm I'm not a lover, um, are now running a country which has been decimated by years mm-hmm. of war, mm-hmm. but also which the uh, Western banks have um, frozen their assets. Mm-hmm. The IMF has um, cancelled their disbursement that was due to happen this month. So they're they're put in a situation of running a country with very little assets. Yes. I know that they've already spoken to China, and who knows what agreement they're going to come they're going to mm-hmm. come to there. Um, Afghanistan could play a could play a significant role in their in their Belt Road initiative, I guess. Um, but it concerns me that with all this happening, that there might be a renewed call for Western engagement in Afghanistan because the nasty Taliban have um, destroyed the rights of women and children in Afghanistan and we need to do something about it. Yeah, well, look, the uh, the Taliban could make things a lot better by just disappearing. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that, that's not going to happen. And uh, I live in the real world. Yeah. Um, in which the Taliban are there. They are, in fact, in control of the country. And my interests, and anybody who's in the peace movement or sympathetic to it, um, their interests ought to be the people of Afghanistan, not the great power interests of the United States, uh, not the uh, position of the Taliban. Uh, and so what would help the people of Afghanistan? Uh, unfreezing the government of Afghanistan's financial assets is an important first step. doesn't matter what you think about the Taliban. I think they'd be, we'd all be better off if they just disappeared. Uh, but they are in control. Uh, and uh, if you want the people of Afghanistan to, um, uh, to benefit after decades of uh, great power torture, uh, then what you want to do is make the country governable. Don't make it ungovernable. Uh, now, the Taliban of today are not the same as the Taliban of the mid-1990s. The Taliban, um, for the last 20 years, have been fighting for a a moral order that is centered around their harsh version of Islam, but which grants great autonomy to local communities. The Taliban are, in fact, the supreme anti-Leninists. They are... Uh, very, they are polycentric. Uh, they are not. Uh, they, they, they believe in local uh, self-government in a patriarchal uh, sense, uh, but uh, they are the ultimate anti-Leninists. They hate the idea of central governments, uh, and the ideology of the Taliban has, in fact, changed. There have been studies about this now. Uh, so, uh, at some point, it would not surprise me uh, to see uh, an Afghan government ambassador in Canberra. 
under the government of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, namely the Taliban-led government. Um, now, to the extent that engagement with the Taliban, uh, whether by us, by the United States, by uh, China or Russia or anywhere else, uh, especially the Central Asian states that have a, a lot, uh, a lot to gain uh, by uh, not having uh, terrorist groups floating around in Afghanistan, uh, the best way to ensure that the Afghan people uh, benefit is by re-engaging with the Taliban. Just treat them like a normal country and uh, uh, stop starving the people and harming the people uh, in order to punish the Taliban because you're actually only punishing the people. And freeze their assets and renew their IMF disbursements. Yes, and, and to the extent that uh, uh, assistance is being provided, uh, that should be done through the government of, of Afghanistan, which happens to be the Taliban, uh, and to uh, uh, try and support progressive elements in the society, because the Taliban have they, they have they have done a self-examination. They've worked out why it is people hated them so much. They've worked out that they were completely naive and ignorant back in the 1990s. They live in a world with smartphones, uh, with Twitter, with other forms of social media. Uh, they, in fact, are, are going out of their way uh, to reassure people. Uh, that they're not going to impose some harsh Saudi Arabian version of Islam back there. Uh, but I don't care about the Taliban so much, uh, or even about great power interests, so much as the people of Afghanistan. In a sane world, we'd be paying them reparations, not talking about giving aid. Yes, well, that's um, what we're about on the Friday rave and at 3CR, I dare say. We don't really care about great power interests, but about looking after the people. Um, Clinton, that's about all we've got time for today. I believe you're going to come back and join us next week to talk about some documents that are being released in regard to Chile and the shenanigans that um, the United States and, of course, the Australian government are up to back there around the fall of the end day in um, 75. Uh, thank you, Jacob. Yes, next week uh, I will discuss, uh, thanks to your invitation, um, uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service's role in the overthrow of Chile. Uh, we have some declassified documents um, that will become public over the weekend after a four-year battle in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Okay. Until then, Clinton, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. 